You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Are we all here? Are we all assembled? I will expect you to, to <laughs> accord yourself with a modicum of decorum. During the Q&A portion of the show, there's a microphone there. I'd like you to, if you have a question, to uh, form an orderly queue and address the microphone so we can get a fabulous recording of your question. <clears throat> Creative work of value is possible only when there's resistance either of the medium or of the people at whom the work is aimed. But since, with the collapse of the prohibitions of the religions and the censor, one can say anything to anyone, and since, with the disappearance of those attentive listeners who hung on every word, one can howl anything at anyone, literature and all its humanistic affinities is a corpse, whose advancing decay is stubbornly concealing the next of kin. Therefore, one should seek out new realms for creativity, those in which can be found a resistance that will lend an element of menace and risk, and therewith importance and responsibility, to the situation. Such a field, such an activity, can today be only literary detection. <laughs> I have with us today the man who created literary detection. His name is Jasper Ford. He's the author of the Thursday Next novels, including The Air Affair, Lost in the Good Book, The Well of Lost Plots, Something Rotten, First Among Sequels, the nursery crime novels, The Big Over Easy and The Fourth Bear, Shades of Grey, The Road to High Sa Saffron, The Last Dragon Slayer, both expecting sequels real soon now, his latest book is the newest Thursday Next novel, One of Our Thursdays is Missing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Jasper Ford. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank, of course, the Capitola Book Cafe for making this space available tonight. And I'd like to remind uh, the people here that I have a show on KUSP from 6 to 7 on Sunday evenings. It's the Agony Column. You can hear interviews just like this. You can hear a lot more. Just tune into KUSP at 88.9 FM or KUSP.org. Jasper, take it away. Why don't you read? To oh, us? what am I doing? You're going to read. <laughs> I'm going to read. He's going to read okay. a bit from his newest novel. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, um, hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Good to see you all again. Who, who, who came here last time? Oh, there we go. Look, so there's a few people here who, ha who haven't. Stalkers. Um, yeah, stalkers, stalkers. no. <laughs> we, we like a more polite term than that, not stalkers. <laughs> So enthusiastic readers. That's yeah. Officer. Millen. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'll read a, a short section. I should give a little sort of, can I give a little preamble? As to oh, sure. Doing? Absolutely. Yeah? Um, that's allowed. Um, okay. Well, who hasn't read any of my books? Ah, okay. So um, stand by to be a little bit confused. <laughs> but presumably you're here because someone has said, you need to come and listen because you need to read these books or something like that. Is that... Yeah? Were you out of here out of the rain? Because <laughs> <laughs> the coffee's good. And, yeah. um, so, I write, um, I write in the fantasy genre. Oh, you can't hear? Oh. Yes. What? He can hear. Come to stop. What? You write in the fantasy genre? Oh, are yeah. you sure? <laughs> so, so you're 
ch chatting to yourselves. Uh, yes? It's very quiet. Well, let's just crank up the volume so we can sound really rock and roll here a little bit. You're going to be deafened in the front row. Okay, is that loud enough? Okay, I think that's loud enough. Okay. <laughs> All right. Can everybody hear? Okay. We're going to use loud, loud voices. Okay. Yeah. Jasper? Okay, so you can hear me now. All right. Um, okay, so I, I write in the, um, in the fantasy genre. And um, the principle of the Thursday Next series, which we're, I guess we're talking about today, um, is of a, a fictional book world that exists within, behind the pages. Fictional? A fictional book world. <laughs> yeah. Fictional? Yeah. These are non-fiction. Okay, they're non-fiction. <laughs> a fictional book world that exists behind uh, the written word, right? So that all the, all the characters in a, in a book and all the settings and everything, they're all there uh, and real and everything. And uh, as soon as a book, uh, as soon as you stop reading a book, the, uh, the characters all have to sort of relax and everything and just sort of wander about and go about their, um, their daily business. Um, now, this sort of rather expansive idea of a book world uh, does need a policing agency to look after it, and this is where my character, Thursday Next, comes in. So she's one of the people who, who tries to keep the, uh, the book as the original author intended because all these characters are up to mischief all the time, trying to get bigger parts of themselves and all the kind of nonsense that goes on when you're not reading a book. Um, now, in this one, the, uh, the sixth in the series, um, I have uh, my character, Thursday Next, is actually missing. She's meant to be uh, at Peace Talk, giving, uh, meant to be um, uh, looking after the Peace Talks, which meant to be happening on Friday. It all begins about Wednesday. Um, and she's gone missing. And the only person who can uh, possibly hope to find her is, oh, excuse me, um, is the written Thursday Next, because this is where it gets confusing for anyone who hasn't read me here, um, is that, of course, in the fictional uh, book world, um, Thursday Next, my real character, has actually books written about her that she then can investigate in her own um, working for jurisdiction. So it doesn't make much sense, does it? <laughs> Not any sense at all, except when you read it, and then it makes complete and utter sense. Uh, and what I'm doing is I'm just experimenting with the whole notion of what it is to, to be read, to be written, um, and what it's like to actually live inside a fictional world where characters are, are read, um, and what it's like to be read, really. Um, so anyway, um, but what happened with, uh, with uh, this, this book is one of the things I wanted to change, because uh, the strange thing is when you write fantasy and you write series, you often have better ideas further on down the line um, that you want to actually change. Um, but I'm the author, you see, so I can do this. Uh, usually, when you have a series, you can't actually change things because everyone gets really annoyed. Um, uh, fortunately, my, my books are sort of infinitely immutable in this fashion. Uh, and when I want to change something, I can just change it because it actually fits in with the whole, uh, the whole fantasy idea of the book. Um, so anyway, so the book world has been remade from a, a very much a sort of great library kind of um, concept where all books were actually in a, in a, in a great library and you'd pull, pull, out, pull out a book and you'd read it to get in it. Uh, and this, in this uh, new book, what I've done is actually created the idea of a book world, which is, um, which is a series of islands um, where, with all the genres and everything, are actually laid out very much like a, you know, a map. Um, and the bit I'll read to you is, uh, is when the written Thursday is discovering her new, uh, the new remade book world for the first time. Uh, the op opening line, actually, of, of the novel is, in fact, um, everyone can remember where they were when the book world was remade, which I kind of like as a sort of first line. But, but the bit we're going to read now is just uh, when she's uh, discovering the new, the new book world. It took nine minutes to remake, and they had to shut down the entire book world while they did it, uh, which, is, which is quite difficult, because, of course, there's always someone reading somewhere 
So they, they had to find a time. They had to find nine minutes when no one was reading. Um, and they did it during a, a sports uh, a croquet final. <laughs> um, so um, it was the Swindon Mallets versus the, uh, the Gloucester Meteors. Very big match, a grudge match. Um, anyone who doesn't, hasn't read me, it does sound very strange, but believe me, I assure you, it does work. And, and everyone else here who has read me will, will assure you um, in the interval if there is one and pat your hand and say it's okay. <laughs> um, I stood up and noticed for the first time that my li living room seemed that little bit more realistic. The colours were subtler and the walls had an increased level of texture. More interestingly, the room seemed to be brighter and there was light coming in through the windows. It was real light too, the sort that cast shadows and not the pretend stuff we were used to. I grasped the handle, opened the front door and stepped outside. The empty interbook nothing that had separated the novels and genres had been replaced by fields, hills, rivers, trees and forests. And all around me the countryside opened out into a series of expansive vistas with the welcome novelty of distance. We were now in the southeast corner of an island, perhaps 100 mile by 50, and bounded on all sides by the Tech Sea, which had been elevated to grade 4 picturesque status by the addition of an azure hue and a soft billowing motion that made the text shimmer in the breeze. As I looked around, I realised that whoever had remade the book world had considered practicalities as much as aesthetics. Unlike the real world, which is inconveniently located on the outside of a sphere, the new book world was anchored on the inside of a sphere, thus ensuring that horizons worked in the opposite way to those in the real world. Further objects were higher in the visual plane than nearer ones. From anywhere in the book world, it was possible to view anywhere else. I noticed too that we were not alone. Stuck on the inside of the sphere were hundreds of other islands very similar to our own, and each a haven for a category of literature therein. About 10 degrees up slope of fiction, I could see our nearest neighbour, artistic criticism. It was an exceptionally beautiful <laughs> island, yet deeply troubled, confused, and suffused with a blanket layer of almost impenetrable word I can't say on radio. <laughs> B.S. Beyond that were psychology, philately, and software manuals. But the brightest and biggest archipelago I could see upon the closed sea was a scattered group of genres that made up non-fiction. They were positioned right on the other side of the inner globe, and so were almost directly overhead. On one side of the island, the cliffs of irrationality were slowly being eroded away, while on the opposite shore, the sands of science were slowly reclaiming salt marsh from the sea. While I stared upwards, open-mouthed, a steady stream of books moved in an endless, multi-layered crisscross high in the sky. But these weren't books of the small paper and leather variety that one might find in the outland. These were the collected settings of the book, all bolted together and connected by a series of walkways and supporting beams, cables and struts. They didn't look so much like books, in fact, but more like a series of spiky lumps. While some one-room dramas were no bigger than a double-decker bus and zipped across the sky, others moved slowly enough for us to wave at the occupants, who waved back. As we stood watching our new world, the master copy of Dr. Shivago passed overhead, <laughs> blotting out the light and covering us in the light dusting of snow. <laughs> what do you think? asked Whitby. Oh, brave new book world, I whispered as I gave him a hug, that has such stories in it. <laughs> so there you go, a little, little, bit of the, uh, little bit of the book. Confused? You will be. <laughs> Right. You know, uh, Jasper, yes. you, one of the things you mentioned, mm. you claimed this was fantasy and that you're in the fantasy genre. Yeah. And on one hand, I think that uh, you're simply a genre unto yourself. Mm. And on the other hand, I would say a large chunks of this are in many ways like nonfiction because I think you think really deeply about reading mm. in a way that nobody else has, in a way that mm. is 
really pretty organized and scientific. But let's get back to the fantasy aspect. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, fantasy tends to be, when, we, when somebody says it's fantasy, we tend to think of uh, the Lord of the Rings. But this mm. is nothing like the Lord of the Rings. And in fact, it has a lot of mystery in it, too. Uh, so. I know, but I have to give it some label. I mean, uh, what, what can I say? I mean, if I said sort of it's fiction fiction, would that make any more sense? <laughs> it's metafiction. Metafiction? Does that make any Does that make, I mean, it makes more sense, but usually when you're talking about it, people want a label. I mean, strangely enough, you know, I think genre is like the measles of the book world. Um, why, yeah. why we have genre, I have no idea. I mean, I, I think that all, all books actually shouldn't be in, in a bookshop. They shouldn't be in genre. They should be like in the color of the of the of the of the cover. <laughs> and and you you read a really good green book, and you come in again and say, I, I really love that green book. Do you have any more green books? And you go, Yeah, sure. Here you go. And the one you bought was a western. The next one is a thriller. And you go, Ah, oh, these green books are great. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I was kind of vaguely hoping with the airfare and of course the whole series because they're they're everything. They're sci-fi, thriller, fantasy. But, I mean, I've even got western. You know, there's a chapter of western in the beginning of one of my books, um, and a bit of romance and all kinds of stuff. And I, I'm, I tend to look at it as a, as a, as a train station with lots of lift, different trains in it. And you might come in on, you might be someone who likes um, crime, and you come in on the crime train, and then you think, hey, this is this horror's quite, oh, there's horror in it as well. Um, <laughs> hey, this this horror train's quite good. You know, I'll just take that out for a bit, and I'll, then I'll go and read some horror. And um, and I was just trying to sort of take all these ideas because stories are stories, and I think all stories are great, no matter what genre it is. My 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 you know choice of reading is very eclectic. I just like it if it's good. If it's good, it's good. It's like shuffle on my iPod. It's just bizarre. Um, you know, it's like Mozart next to I don't know the Clash. You know, and they're both brilliant. Um, but you know, people think no, 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 you can't compare them. And you can, I think, because it's all music and it's all enjoyable. And it's the same as stories. So, um, so I, I just people like labels. So I just generally say fantasy. But people think of fantasy as they think it as as you know trolls and goblins. And of course, that's not what fantasy is about at all. You know, uh, it's a hard one. You know, if I say sci-fi, everyone thinks of ray guns or stuff. You know, in general. And if romance, you think it's sort of slushy. So it's it's a difficult. Thing. And then when you say, you know, metafiction, everyone goes, oh, right, yeah, highfalutin. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do a bit, don't they? Because they think you're putting on airs. So I sort of just say fancy and have done with it. Yeah. Well, you know, you think a lot about and write a lot about genre in your books mm. and the conflicts about genre yeah. and, and between genres. Mm. And, and I'm wondering, as you're thinking and writing about these genres, do you, um, do you, Try to fulfill when you say you, you have a, a chapter of Western in there. Do you mm. think this is going, this chapter is going to be Western genre, and these are the aspects, these are the mm. limits of the Western, and yeah. that's what the appeal of genre is: the limits. Yeah. And you seem to take genre and blow out all the limits. So <laughs> that's an, you, yeah. that's kind of a, a conflict of ideas for you. Um, well, I don't know about conflict of ideas. I mean, it's just stories about stories. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I kind of say you know I write books about books for people who like stories and stories for people who love books. Um, when I did the Western genre, I, I, I know someone who writes Westerns, and I said, give me t two A4 sheets of paper with every single cliche you can think of. <laughs> um, and I can you know, try and get it in there, you know, the lone gunman and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and, then, and then you start adding other stuff. You know, and, and the great thing about genre and the, and the fact that people sort of take these different aspects is, is once you start mixed genres, you get all kinds of great ideas. Um, and, uh, and I think in the Western genre, they're, they're tracking the Minotaur across the, the Western genre, um, and he's, they're, they're tracking him with slapstick. 
they've darted him with slapstick. So they're looking for custard pie, you know, sort of, sort of custard pies all around Western fiction. Um, and it's you, when you take those kind of two ideas and sort of separate them out um, and, and then put them back together again, I think there's just a lot of sort of silly fun. But yeah, I mean, they are books about books. I mean, if, if we're going to be serious about what genre it is, I would say it's fiction fiction. Um, I don't like, like metafiction because it's like, you know, post-constructional demodernism. It doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I like the idea of fiction fiction. It's just, it's just stories about books and stories about writing. Well, I think, too, that you, you're, you think very deeply about the reading process. I don't, think, uh, I don't think anybody has gone to the depth of psychological analysis of the reading process mm. of you. Entirely by but, accident. I, pardon? Entirely by accident. I don't, I don't really think about it a great deal. I just sort of put down what sort of comes to my head. Really. Well, talk about, you know, a, as a writer, you are also, you talk about you have an eclectic reading taste. Mm. Um, as a writer, how much are you thinking about how people, your readers are going to take this stuff? And how, I mean, are you able to read your own fiction as fiction, or is it just so utterly familiar to you that you just can't even wrap your brain around that? I mean, do you have to drop it for years and come back to it? Well, I mean, I, I wish. I mean, I can't. <laughs> you know, I, I write, you know, after it takes a book, it takes about 100 days to write, and it's, and it's just whipped off into the publisher. So, I mean, I don't have that luxury. No, it's, it's a very, very strange, dark art. And there's, it's like going to a, a course on creative writing. You know, there's, or going to film school or something. You know, th there is 90% that you could possibly learn, you know, in five years, but there's another 5% that you just can't put your finger on. You know, it's, it's exchanges between characters. There's a very sort of subtle, um, almost intuitive uh, sense of, you know, what, what is right and what isn't. Um, but it's no more complex than, um, than the complexities that we have within human relationships. You know, you know when someone's standing too close to you. And the difference between someone standing too close and not standing too close is, is like this far, you know, you, literally. I mean, someone's standing just the right distance, and that's acceptable for all millions of reasons that you couldn't possibly really write down. We just know it, right? But if someone steps that tiny bit closer, then all of a sudden it's something else, yeah? And something they may say, or, you know, or eyes that don't blink, and then all of a sudden it's very, very strange. So there, there is, you know, yes, there is a complexity there, but I'm not sure when you say, you know, that I actually, you know, consciously put this stuff down. A lot of it is, is just stuff that you write because it's very, very intuitive. And it's, but it's no more complex than just ordinary human relations. And that's what you're doing when you're writing, is humans are stories, essentially. Everything that we do is essentially stories. Uh, we communicate by stories, uh, we're entertained by stories, uh, and we educate through stories. Humans are stories. They are us. They define us. And what I'm doing, and what all authors are doing when they write stories, are essentially putting that huge, complex canvas and interactions right, in, into a little book form. And the reason that people can understand a book thousands of miles away is because essentially we're all singing to the same song sheet, that very, very complex human interaction um, you know, song sheet that we do. So a lot of the stuff I do, people say to me, oh, I li love that bit where you did so-and-so and so-and-so. I said, yeah, that, that kind of worked, didn't it? And they go, yeah, and that's exactly it. Yes, it kind of worked. You go, but, but why did it work? And you go, because it just did, you know? <laughs> and, and people say to me, and I go, I do this creative writing thing as a master class, which sounds a bit grand. Um, and someone says to me, you know, I have this idea, and they give, it, they give me this, like, sort of, you know, 30-second pitch. And they said, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, it can work, totally, but then it might not as well. 
you know, it, if it works, it works. It's as simple as that. And, and quite often, um, there are, the, I, I have like 10 rules for writing that I've written down, and I, I often go through them. But the final rule is you can ignore all the rules, right? <laughs> and if it works, it works. Uh, and we've, we all know, you know, we've seen or read books or, or, or seen or heard jokes or, or anything that, that completely goes against all the rules. If you were to play music that we enjoy now to people who lived 200 years ago, they would probably see it, uh, hear it as just noise. But we don't. We see it, hear it as music. So there's, there's, it's infinitely complex. And, I, and I'm not sure uh, the, the value in perhaps probing too deeply. It's like, it's like trying to figure out comedy, you know? It's like dissecting a frog, you know? Um, the frog generally dies and you don't really find out what's going on. <laughs> so, you know, but it's, um, there's a bit of magic involved. It's kind of magic. I mean, I'd love to have made up that line. It's such a great line, you know, the, from, the, from the, the Highlander. It's a, it's a kind of right, reading. It's, it's a kind of magic. It really is. Or, um, it doesn't really answer your question, does it? it yeah, it does. Yeah, it gets, gets close to it. I mean, do you, when you, have you, like, uh, talked to any neuroscientists about what happens when we read? I'm no, curious. no, never. I'm just curious. No, that's like dissecting the frog again, isn't it? <laughs> and, and do you know, I don't think it would, it would help me as an author, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would give me ideas, mm -hmm. obviously, about how it all works. And there's certainly, I was looking into a bit of that with Shades of Grey mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, visual cortexes and, and stuff like that and perception. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very interesting color as perception. Right. Um, but um, I was no. wondering if there's, a, if there's been a, uh, if you'd ever gone, because it seems to me that there's really a lot that, Reading is such something that's so common mm. to us. It's so easy and so familiar to everybody in our world, and some people do it and some people don't. But it's something that's not really well understood, I think. Well, actually, reading or actually stories, because you don't have to be able to read to get a story, do you? You know, you're right. Well, there reading is entirely different. But, I mean, just speaking is, is fascinating, because speaking works apparently in all different parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. and, and you use one part of the brain for the nouns, the other part of the brain for the verbs. Really? Yeah, as you put it all together, and we put it all together on the hoof. On the hoof, yeah. Really, really hard. quickly, and <laughs> we could explain these incredibly complex ideas, just, and it comes straight out, and it's just fantastically complex, I must say. Well, now... Uh, books are a pale imitation of the human brain. Well, I don't think they're so pale. I think your well, books uh, get us into the human brain mm. in a way, and into the story, too. Yeah. So talk about what your sense of, of story is, because I think that... <clears throat> One of the reasons your books are so enjoyable mm. is you tell it with a lot of verve, mm. and, and uh, there's almost a kind of a Jules Verne, mm. uh, the, the you know a, a real fresh feeling of discovery in your books that mm. that makes them I think a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean it's difficult for me because I, do, I, I write them. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's only it's only years later that when I haven't actually read my book for sort of ten years, I go and read it, and then I look at it and say, you know, either I think it's quite good, or, or occasionally I find a good line in it that I, I'm quite proud of. Uh, but generally, I just see the faults. But that's always the way with your own work. Um, but um, I don't know what was your question. <laughs> I can't remember. Well, it was I wanted to wanted you. To talk about um, your sense of story. Oh, sense of story. Um, yeah, because I mean, you could you could really sort of without um, without sort of trying to overcomplicate it. I think uh, essentially I'm I'm trying to stop people getting bored yeah. when you're writing a story. Uh, I mean, just to make it really sim sound really simple, uh, I'm trying to write an interesting and engaging story, uh, and I think that's really really important. If um, 
you know, I, I remember someone saying to me um, uh, at a talk I gave, and they came up and they said there was one particular instance in the book, and they said it, um, it, it really made me cry. And I went, what, like really cry? You know, and they said, yeah, yeah, it actually made me cry. And I said, oh, good. And I went, no, hang on, that's not good at all. I made you cry. And she said, no, it was good. It was good. It actually, you know, it, I had this emotional response. Um, but my response, good, you know, it worked. And I was actually engaging in, you know, these sort of human emotions and everything. But if you can make people laugh, you know, a, a hundred, three hundred thousand miles away at something that I wrote seven years ago, you know, that's, um, that's a tremendous sort of feeling, I must say. But it, it is essentially storytelling is I'm attempting to engage and I'm attempting to entertain. I, I've always put myself on the entertainment side of the, 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 the literary world. I don't call myself a literary author. I call myself an entertainer first and foremost, and you give me your hard-earned cash, and I have to deliver, you know, six, six and a half hours, hopefully, uh, of boredom-free reading. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's really, that's, that I, I, it really doesn't get more complex than that. Uh, and however I do it, in whatever way I like doing it, in the complex jokes that I tell, and some of the jokes I tell are very complex. Some jokes, in fact, uh, are so complex that, in fact, um, when I want to tell a joke, it becomes a, 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 like a, a sort of short story in itself. I mean, the, uh, a good, good example of this was a character named um, Felix Seven and Felix Eight, um, who appear in The Air Affair. He's a great character. He's a henchman of Asheron Hades, the world's third most evil man. And, and there's a joke in itself. You know, why is he the world's third most evil man? You know? And that's to get you thinking about who the first and second are. But it, but it also allows you a little window into Asheron Hades, because he doesn't really want to do evil for, to, to make money. He wants to be eventually the world's most evil man, you know, and that's his flaw, you know, is the arrogance, you know, because he just, he's just grandstanding the whole time, because he could go and steal money all the time, and it wouldn't be a problem, he'd just sort of leap into a bank vault, take the money, go, and no one ever knows that, but no, he wants to be seen, you know, he wants people to say, isn't that Ashron Hades, the world's most evil man, you know, <laughs> but he's not, he's just like a failure. Um, but, and he is, he, he is, he's failing, you can see it, it's written all over him, you know, that's what he's endlessly trying to do, he wants to be evil, you know, just to be evil's sake, and, you know, famous, a fame, you know, real sort of, you know, man of the 90s, just wants his 15 minutes, um, you know, celebrity, sort of obsessed. Um, but the character of Felix, uh, Felix was, um, came about um, because originally, uh, how Felix works, for anyone who can't remember or, or hasn't read it, um, is that um, Felix, the original Felix, was Asheron Hades' um, sort of henchman. Uh, and when he died, because he doesn't have this sort of demonic, invulnerable capabilities that, that Asheron has, um, he died in a sort of botched robbery somewhere. Um, and um, an Asheron, to sort of, you know, because he felt a bit sorry for him, he actually cut off his face with a penknife, right? And then he steals the will of someone else and then takes off the old face and puts a new one on. So there's this sort of patchwork sort of Felix. And each one then becomes this sort of unthinking, amoral henchman um, who ev eventually ends up dying. Uh, and then each time he takes off the face and puts it on someone else. And, and I think we get to Felix Seven, right? Uh, and then and they, they kill Felix Seven, and then before you know it, there's a Felix Eight. Um, but, I mean, it's a very long story. But in fact, um, <laughs> what, what Thursday does when, when, when she meets uh, the Felix for the second time, when he's been replaced, is she says, uh, haven't I seen your face somewhere before? <laughs> right. Now, the only reason that Felix exists is to make that joke work. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, when you, when you start talking about complex storytelling, you know, a lot of it isn't. It's just me thinking up ideas and then thinking, how can I slot them in? There's more sort of narrative contortions going on here um, the, than actually, you know, planning and everything. And my book's just sort of, just kind of bleh, 
like that. It's so you just sort of <laughs> stick things in a blunderbuss and fire them into the ceiling. Um, and then just see how it all fits together. And, and I think that's more how, more how I work than actually really consciously making a decision on how things are going to happen. Somebody's uh, tagged you with uh, slapstick. What, have they? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. Custard pie. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, one of the things I like about your books is you have a constant and uh, a wonderful uh, evocation and satire of bureaucracy. Mm. And you're really good. All of your books have all sorts of different, like, completely insane bureaucracies. And, mm. and you have, you're great at writing regulations and laws mm. and endless meetings. And, and it's, yeah. I, I'm wondering what bureaucracy you were ever caught up in that made you hate it so much. Well, I mean, none, really. I mean, I, went, I sort of went to school, I suppose, which is a kind of bureaucracy of sorts. Um, no, I mean, I, it's satire, really. And, and I, th I mean, I find humans hugely... Um, hugely funny and amusing. I mean, no end of amusement, really, when what we get up to. It's astonishing with so much intelligence and so little wisdom. Um, there is such a... They're just ripe for making fun of, really. And we can see the joke, which makes it all the more beautiful. Um, but the thing about satire is, of course, it's, it's, there's, there's three sort of prongs as to why satire is so good. First of all, it's really funny. It's great fun. Um, but also, if you're, if you're writing a sort of fantasy world, a, a parallel little universe, um, it actually anchors their universe in ours, so it makes it recognisable, um, which I think is, you know, really, really, really good. Um, so you recognise this world. This is a world that you understand, you know, that that is the framework that exists within the world. Um, and, and thirdly, also, it's, it's good to sort of point, fun, point the fun and point fingers at, um, at the more absurd points of, of human behaviour. Um, and that's always good news as well, and perhaps is a little bit of cause for thought. Um, I think uh, it's what authors do. I mean, you can either, as an author, you can either start preaching, which is really boring, uh, hideously boring, in fact. I hate it when I'm being preached to in a book, and I think most people do. Um, but if you have ideas that you think are sort of vaguely positive, you write about them, and then they sort of join that little cloud, ethereal cloud that sits above us that we that authors just sort of blow something into and and people take stuff from there this is sort of the zeitgeist the cloud of zeitgeist and if there are positive things to be to be gained from you know billowing it up into the into the heavens like that to be perhaps you know inhaled again then that's 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 the position that you do and i think that's some that's a bit of satire and that's what why i do it really to be honest but it's mostly it's funny well too what i like is that you're a, while you make fun of bureaucracy, you also mm. recognize its strengths, too. And mm. I think that's what that one of the things I think that uh, makes your work so appealing is that you, mm. you play both sides of the, of the game well. Well, I mean, yeah, bureaucracy is there. I mean, it has to be. We're an you know, extremely social uh, creature. And without some form of bureaucracy, we, just, we simply wouldn't function. Um, it's interesting to, to note that, in fact, writing uh, was initially invented um, for essentially writing nothing more complex than receipts. Um, Sumerian tablets, you know, in cuneiform and stuff, were basically um, for doing accounts. Um, and only then did it actually um, change into recording events and people, and eventually here, here we are now. Um, but, I mean, bureaucracies are part of humans. It's like networks. Isn't it interesting that, you know, you look around the world and there are networks everywhere. Networks of friends, computer networks, road networks, everything. And then you look inside the head, and what you've got is this huge network, neural network. So we've sort of created a world after our own, after our own brains, which I think is rather, rather amusing. And of course, we have to. Everything seems to be in our own image. It's what we understand. Fantastically complex creatures, I must say. Yeah. 
Oh, that's one of the things I think your books capture well. There, mm. because also you have there's a for all the fantasy and wild invention and humor, mm. your books are really human and funny, mm. and there's some sweet okay. romance. You make that stuff yeah. make that stuff work, and mm. to to put that in the fantasy, I think it. it how much of that um, could comes before the fantasy, and how much comes as a result of the fantasy? Um. I think it all just sort of arrives at the same time. I mean, I, I write Sweet. very much, you know, on the hoof, uh, and, I'll, and I'll just start writing stuff, and, and I think, oh, that works kind of well, and and then I'll go off and I'll be writing away in the afternoon, and I'll be putting this chapter together, and I'll be and I'll be thinking, yeah, it would work really nicely if I did this and that and the other, and there's a whole sequence in um, uh, First Among Sequels where we um, about we learn about Thursday and the, the mind worm. Um, which, which allows her to, to understand, just for a brief period of time, how her family react to her problems, right? Um, and it's quite a complex, it's actually quite a complex piece of writing. Um, certainly for me, it was very exciting to write it. Um, because what we're doing, you're in a first-person narrative book, and you're trying to demonstrate how much a family care for the, the first-person narrative protagonist. But that's kind of difficult to do, um, you know, because they can't just say things. They've got to demonstrate things. And the fact that they, are, they demonstrate that their support uh, for her because she has this problem about she thinks she has a daughter that she hasn't got. Um, another complex <laughs> um, idea. Um, but what they're doing for her, it, it, you suddenly realize throughout the book, you suddenly realize what they're doing for her to support her and just how much they obviously they love her. So it's, it's things like that, but it, it, you know, there isn't so much thought as you think, Rick. Oh. And I know you're trying to, no, I know you're trying to make me out here to be a sort of huge, you know, mega mind. No, but, I, but I in fact, you're, you're, a, you're a surfer. Uh, yeah, a lot of it is, is you just, you see what you've got, you play with things, you go, that's going to work, let's move that, let's put that here, we'll do this here, that, oh, hang on a sec, no, let's get rid of that, and we'll do this, and I have an idea, and I think, oh, somebody said to me something the other day, that would work quite well. Now, I remember a, a ser uh, uh, an episode of Baywatch, which had a little interesting <laughs> line in it, and I could use that, and then I do, and then you, and, and that's how it all comes together. And if you have a mind like mine, mine which tends to sort of gather thoughts um, and ideas from absolutely everywhere, um, then, then they sort of froth and bubble to the surface and, and you can use all these different um, things that I've seen and witnessed and just create this sort of morass of, of writing that hopefully holds together. Well, I was pleased to see the uh, John Pertwee reference in uh, oh, were you? first among Yeah, I can't remember it now. Where was that? Uh, it was uh, partway through. And it yeah. did, you were talk talking about uh, one of your characters who said that John Pertwee was his favorite doctor. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I was, yeah. wasn't uh, sure about him. I'm more of a Tom Baker man myself. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that was the other nominee. Yeah. I liked He's always him. the forgotten doctor, John Pertwee, I always think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone always goes, oh, Tom Baker, the best. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I was actually brought up with, with John Pertwee. I mean, yeah. If anyone's a Doctor Who fan here, yeah, there always is, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but, but I was brought up in the 70s, so I did have the John Pertwee Doctor Who, so I know him a lot better than the, the Tom Baker. Oh, there's some great, uh, there's some great episodes there. Now, mm. uh, you've got four series going now, right? Mm, yeah. This must be juggling. Talk about writing a series yeah. arc. I mean, you, you, do, yeah. you, uh, you clearly are happy to use all the advantages of fantasy to just completely tear down everything you've done before and rebuild it up again with mm. one of our Thursdays is missing. Mm. Tell us about how your other series kind of, they seem to leak across one another. I mean, little well, yeah. trails of, of yeah. it's like you're trying to mix all the paint in different jars, but 
mm. thoughts get over, don't they? Well, there has to be a bit because yeah. it's all me, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's the kind of stuff I write. I, I, people ask me, you know, will you write ever write a, a serious book? You know, and, um, and, and when I stop laughing, you know, uh, I go, I, d I just don't think I can do it. Although, and uh, to me, you know, Shades of Grey is a serious book. You know, that is my serious book. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not the way you expect serious books to be. And I think that's generally how I try and write. It's it's kind of perhaps what people maybe want, but not in the way they kind of think they want it. Uh, and with Shades of Grey, which is very much a mix between, um, unlike the Thursday series, which is uh, a sort of abs uh, a high, high comedy and low comedy mixed, it's like Muppets and Shakespeare, you know, <laughs> which is pretty much, you know, explains my upbringing, really, I have Muppets and Shakespeare. Um, you know, it's Ham Hamlet and Kermit, you know, together. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, the great frog. Um, um, so, so, with, so that's very much the, the Thursday series. And whereas the nursery crime series is just like straight silly, as I, I regard it, but on the framework of a totally pucker crime novel. You know, they all work totally as crime novels, and that's, that's very, very important. Hard-boiled. Hard-boiled. Yeah, hard-boiled, yeah, hard-boiled, yeah. hard uh, completely silliness. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's Super silly, yeah. Super silly. But then the the, the shades of grey uh, is much more. Uh, let's see if we can if we can mix very serious with very absurd, or very silly, or funny, or comedy, or try and mix them the two. Um, and and I think that was I think it kind of vaguely works, doesn't it, in a kind of odd kind of way? Because you all of a sudden you get to these positions where you suddenly think, hang on, this is really funny, but no, actually, what's going on is actually quite serious. You know, mm -hmm. uh, should I be laughing or should I be thinking, hmm, you know, is Jasper talking about the human condition and how, how you know, how, how serious is he being? Um, and I think I was just trying to mix the two in a perhaps unusual way that maybe hadn't been done before. Um, and it's just writing with a bit of risk as well, which is always fun. I think. Now, you have another series that we haven't seen mm. here in the United States. No, no, so no, yeah. talk about that. Where did that come from? Uh, this, this was something called The, the Last Dragon Slayer which was uh, written actually a long time ago, uh, in sort of 96. I wrote it after, the first, first book I wrote was um, uh, Big Over Easy, then there was The Fourth Bear, then there was, uh, um, uh, then there was The Air Affair. Uh, then I wrote another book, which was called, um, what was that called? Oh, um, it was Dark and Stormy Night. It's a great name for a book, I think. It was a Dark and Stormy Night. <laughs> Hasn't been published. Um, it's still on my hard drive. Um, I was going to do a sequel to it called uh, And So the Long Evening Wore On, <laughs> which is a great title, isn't it? So I mentioned that. Um, then, then the fifth one I wrote after that was called uh, The Last Dragon Slayer. And this was my sort of YA or children's book or whatever and, and sort of featured dragons and, and magic and stuff like that. Um, but it was more my, my way of looking at the genre. Because um, all the way that I see the genre, because I haven't, I mean, apart from sort of Ursula Le Guin, I don't, and, and the Narnia series, I haven't actually read any Potter, so I don't really, I, I've seen the films, I suppose, and there's a lot of osmosis there that you pick up. But it was my idea, my sort of um, idea of, uh, of the, whole, the whole sort of magic stuff. Um, I don't know, has anyone read the, oh, a couple of people, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, and it was basically saying that, um, that magic, in much the same way as the, the time travel, um, subplots in the Thursday series that the time travel is ho-hum and boring um, because it's so commonplace and that's the same thing with magic in the in the last dragon slayer it, it's ho-hum it's commonplace and there's the, there's not much power left it's the power's been slowing going down and wizards uh, who used to be all powerful uh, now just do um, a rewiring 
house house rewiring because it's great because you can you can rewire a house without having to take the plaster off and how cool is that? Um, uh, and it's all heavily the heavily uh, bureau bureaucracy. Um, you know you can't do anything without a, without filling out a form because of um, because there's a bit of a sort of dodgy history between magicians and people and there was a bit of sort of the world domination issues a few centuries ago uh, and so they're slightly suspicious of, of wizards um, and it was really just sort of taking that idea. Uh, and sort of running with it, and then add, adding in a few dragons and these mis mis mythical beasts, and just making it normal. It's, it's set now. People drive around in cars, you know, set very much now. But it's very much sort of, you know, magic as normal. You know, it's just like magic as plumbing or magic as, as being an electrician, you know. Um, but it's, I think it's quite amusing. I rather like it. It's, it's a good morality tale as well, I always felt. But, um, yeah. And we're going to get those in the U.S., aren't uh, we? Yeah, you are. Yeah, absolutely. We, we sold these, um, so they will be coming out. We're hoping at the end of this year, or failing that, it'll be the beginning of next year. And there's three of them, of which I'm writing number two at the moment. Mm. So, yeah. But they're quite short. They're only 50,000 words. It's sort of half a Thursday. Half a Thursday? So half, that's half like a thir uh, thirds. That's <laughs> <laughs> a thirds. Okay. A thirds. <laughs> now, uh, you're... you're uh, one of our Thursdays is missing. Yes. Features a character called Sprocket. Sprocket, yeah. Uh, kind of a clockwork man. And, yeah. And this, not, not kind of a clockwork man. He is a clockwork man. He's a clockwork man. Well, yeah. one of the things that I, I like about that is that finally, I finally twigged after reading that that I'd been reading like that in the sixth book, and and I see the the, the clockwork man. I think, wow, this all these series really are kind of like what's called steampunk from the very beginning, mm. Mm. and and I think that that's yeah. an interesting. Thing that you know, you really have your books really have a kind of an adventure mm. from the very first novel uh, from the era fair on that we read. Um, there's a feeling of adventure and a kind of this clockwork universe, mm. a, and you've you I, I think that's really interesting. Well, it, it's certainly a very analog universe. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are no computers in Thursday's world, everything runs off you know imme immeasurably complex. Um, uh, mechanical computers, sort of Babbage engineering. Computer. Rube, the Rube Goldberg computing. So, so, so you'd have a laptop, <laughs> you know, you'd have a laptop which was full of, you know, almost microscopic cogs, uh, and they'd all be whizzing around, you know, um, and it'd be a totally analog computer, and it would work exactly like a normal computer, only it's immeasurably more complex because it's all nanotechnology, and it works very well. It never crashes because unless you lose a tooth off a cog, it would never crash because it couldn't crash because they're all meshed. You see, it's perfect, um, which is a great idea, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, steampunk. Somebody said you, you, to me, you know, you write steampunk, and they did this about two or three years afterwards, uh, after I'd started writing, and I went, well, what is that? And they said, well, it's kind of Victorian, kind of airships and bricks and riveted iron stuff, all, all things I enjoy. And I said, well, if you think I'm steampunk, I am, but um, it, it wasn't. I didn't intend that way. I, I, ju I just write what amuses me, and also what I like about. I like um, rivets, for instance. You know, um, riveted iron construction, I, I find you know hugely attractive. Um, and, and there's no there's no magic to me in in computers at all, um, I, you know these this stuff. I, li I use them of course, you know all the time. But um, but when you're writing about computers, it's like, it's like when you watch a movie now and they need to know some information, and they have they they either get on the mobile right or they're on the computer like this, and you think. It's just not so much fun, is it? It's like, like see Sherlock Holmes. Take Sherlock Holmes. Um, when 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 uh, when uh, Conan Doyle was was um, was um, uh, writing Sherlock Holmes, the 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 invention of fingerprints had actually come in, right? But he never once mentions it because there's no fun in it, right? It's like DNA databasing. There is no fun there. 
because what you really want to do is want to analyze different cigar ashes, you know, <laughs> because that's that's cerebral, you know. Uh, and and I, wa I watched CSI. If I'm if I'm unlucky, I ca I get catch a, an episode of C CSI, and it's all like on the computers and all that. And you go, well, there's no fun there, is there? You know. So it's all very sort of technical and clinical, and, and I prefer a sort of sim much more simple world. And, and in fact, I think in the early Thursday books, when she wants to make a phone call, she actually picks up and asks to be put through to a number. So there are obviously girls or, or boys on the switchboard, you know, and she said, put me through to, you know, Swindon 622, just connecting you, clink, clonk, clonk, clink, like this. And the same with the foot notophone. You know, there is the, these ranks and ranks of, of, of switchboard operators. And I, and I like that. You know, I just like that. I mean, it's not saying it was a better world, but I just think it's a more interesting one. Mm -hmm. you know? it, it's certainly more fun to read about. Yeah, it's more fun to write mm -hmm. about. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. That's, that's, that's obvious. Yeah. Now, uh, your prose is so much fun to read. Does mm. it pour off the tip of your pen that way, or do you have to go back I wish. and <laughs> uh, I wish. Um, no, I mean, I, I generally have two sorts of writing days. I have what's what I call a scribblage day, where I just get the, the word, the words down on the page, you know, this sort of textual jam, and you know, like that on the page. Uh, and then I have a combing day, which, because um, someone once <laughs> said that um, prose is like hair, and it improves with combing. It's rather nice, isn't it? Louis, um, Louis, Louis Aragon said it, apparently, uh, although I don't know what else he said. Probably quite a lot. Um, anyway, so, so once I get the, the jam down, and then I start combing through it and, and seeing how it works, and, and you kind of work with it and play with it. But oddly enough, sometimes I just I have a, I get an idea for a chapter, and I just write it, and it comes down almost um, word for word, and that's what you get, and I don't change anything. But other ones uh, are heavily changed. Um, descriptive descriptive passages, like that one I, I read to you then, that would have quite a lot of work. I'm much better with dialogue to get on the, on the page in one hit than I am with the descriptions. But um, uh, descriptions are always hard, I must say, because you, you actually want to use as few words as you can. Um, it's, it takes a great deal of energy and skill to write with hardly any words at all. Um, and I always, I always love it whenever I hear authors say it. There was a, um, I'm trying to remember her name now, um, she's a, a very, very good um, British writer. And, and she was describing old, old age as death's adolescence. <laughs> and you think, well, that's brilliant, isn't it? Because it just says so much, and it's, that's what poetry can do for you. Uh, I couldn't have put that together, but, but she could. So um, I, I love that sort of thing. But it's descriptions, you know, using as few words as possible. Now, uh, what's coming up next? What's coming up next? Yeah, what are you working on right now? Oh, I see. Um, what pros? Ah, my, my, top se my top secret, um, top secret uh, book. At the moment, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I am, yes, I am. I'm working on, I'm opening on Dragon Slayer 2 uh -huh. at the moment, which is, I've got to finish that as soon as I get home. Then I've got Top Secret Standalone that I'm not talking about. Oh, okay. Yeah, in much the same way that Shades of Grey. I mean, when I was writing Shades of Grey, I wasn't talking about that either. And I don't generally talk about them. Mm. Um, and that's a complete standalone, because I can't do another series. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I'm almost get hate mail now. <laughs> nice, nice hate mail, love hate mail, which says, you know, uh, for the love of Mike, Jasper, when are you going to finish a series? <laughs> I mean, but in those manner of, not those precise words, but um, like that. Um, so that'll be, a, so that'll be a standalone for next year. That's what we'll be, I'll be pro promoting next year. Um, and then the year after that, we'll hopefully we'll be doing Shades of Grey 2. Year after that, uh, Nursery Crime three, uh, and, then, yay. Um, and then after that, we'll get on to TN seven. It will be then, won't it? So that'll be a dark reading matter, is what I'm calling it. 
Do you have an end in sight for any of these series? Uh, I suppose when the coffin lid goes down. Okay, all right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'll just carry on going. Yeah. Uh, I don't, don't see. I mean, the great thing about Thursday books is I can just write them, you know, because they're books about books. And now I'm writing books about my own books. Which, <laughs> you know, so every time it's I write Escher. You're like the MC book, Escher yeah. of literature. Yeah. Every, time, every time I write my own book, I can then write another book about that book and then write another book. So it just goes on forever. So writing books about books is, 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 is you know, I can do forever. Um, Shades of Grey has got maybe one more, maybe two, if I can have another old bunch of new ideas. Um, there's definitely only three in the Dragon Slayer, and there's definitely only three for the nursery rhyme series, nursery crime series, because I've run out of nursery rhymes, basically. <laughs> Um, so yeah, but then I'll be doing other stuff. And what's exciting as an author, of course, is that, or for me uh, as an author, is that the book I write in seven or eight years' time, I have no idea what it is. And it's out there somewhere, you know, but I've got no idea what it is now. But in seven or eight years, there it will be on the page. Um, and I've got no idea what it, what, what it will be. So it's kind of exciting, actually, kind of exciting. And with that, I think we'll open the, uh, this up to questions from the audience, if you want to step up to the microphone and ask a question. Hi. Hello. Um, until very recently, sort of the only choice of storage media for for uh, fiction would mm. be a book. Mm. Uh, do you see your universe being affected by, say, being put on an e-book or books on tape, mm. um, which is it's a different medium and it mm. feels different and it's you can't lend it necessarily if it's an ebook mm. or if you could act, if you wipe your hard drive for example mm. you'd lose it a lot more easily than mm. necessarily than a, than a paper book yeah um, yeah i mean it's, everyone's talking about ebooks and you know what they mean to the reading public i mean certainly to us people here um, you know we love our paper and, and breaking a, a spine or just doing that thing that you do um, but that's us, because we belong to this generation. I mean, you know, my children and perhaps your very young children will grow up reading stuff off um, devices, uh, and that will be entirely normal. Uh, and they'll, they'll just think reading from a book is, um, is, you know, quaint, you know, and... Analog. Smelly. Yeah, a smelly and sort of, you know, and actually ecologically unsound. They may look at it as that, that way. So, um, so I, I tend to kind of think that although, personally, I love books a great deal, um, as long as people are reading, uh, I, I don't see any particular problem with, you know, reading on devices or whatever. Obviously, there are, are issues. You know, if you lo lose the whole thing, it's gone. Um, but there's absolutely nothing to say that you could then can't get it back again. Um, the, the interesting thing about the Internet, of course, is that the stuff that's on the Internet now that will probably be there as, for as long as we are, um, as people maintain the, the memory. But um, I, I don't know. It's all stories. And if you read a book off a, off a Kindle or, a, or whatever, an ebook or a, a nook or whatever, um, then it, it just works the same way. So I'm, I'm not particularly. The Thursday next universe. Oh, the Thursday next universe. I, I did make I did make a, a couple of references actually in one of our Thursdays is missing. Is that in a kind of um, in a kind of uh, rather sort of cheeky way? I was saying that e the the e-readers require more energy uh, to actually <laughs> to actually run them uh, to get the same kind of you know effect. Um, but that was just on me being sort of you know rather sort of um, I don't know. Maybe a little bit rebellious, but um, uh, I, I don't think there's any certainly no problem with that. I, I won't. Uh, I don't read from an e-reader or a device. I still love paper, but I'm I'm more of a paperback, you know, a format paperback man. One of those, you know, tiny little paperbacks about this big. 
Uh, and they're actually, um, interestingly, um, they're trying to, publishers are trying to bring in a new kind of book, which oh, is... Uh, the big paperbacks. No, 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 the oh. flip. Have you ever heard, no. the, heard the flips? No. Well, you know, you know, the, the A formats are about that size, you know, the small paperbacks. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they're making a flip book, which is on very thin paper that is half that size. And you can literally stuff in your pocket and you actually, you flip it that way, right, like that. And then you get a single page, right? And you flip it again like that and you get another single page. And they're about this thick and that's a full 100,000 word book. Um, so this, this initially came to me as slightly counterintuitive. Um, to be wanting to, you know, bring a new format of book out in the teeth of devices. But, but actually, I think it's like a really good idea uh, because I think people with devices, they're small and that's what people like about them. But if you can buy a flip book that's not very, uh, do they call them flips? I think they call them flips. A flip book for not a lot of money, then that might be actually a good alternative. You just chuck it in your bag, you know, it's dead easy. Doesn't need any batteries, you know, nothing. So there's all sorts of things going on out there. Um, who knows what's going to happen? Um, it's entirely possible that um, the huge surge in ebooks that we're seeing at the moment, um, those are figures that we're getting from Amazon mostly. So it, maybe they're correct, maybe they're not, I don't know. Um, but also, uh, there are an awful lot of Kindles which were sold and given as Christmas presents. So there is a surge at the moment that may flatten off, may dip, who knows? Uh, it may last a year, maybe not. So, you know, it's, it's not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I like books, I must say, but we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'll confess, I read uh, first among sequels on this thing. On that, yeah. There you go. Yeah, it's not bad. You can yeah. whip through it. Yeah, as you get old and your eyesight goes, you yeah. crank out the, <laughs> crank up the, the font size to, yeah. to a readable font size and listen to music at the same time. Yeah. Could you um, identify some of those 10 uh, most important rules for writing that you just sometimes throw out the window? Oh. But I'd be curious yeah. what they were. Oh, right. Um, okay, I have, to, I have to remember them now. Um, I've probably got them, actually. Shall have a look? My, my, lovely, little, uh, my lovely little apple. Uh-oh, it's an e-book. No, it's uh, no, no. Oh, no, it's the uh, MacBook Air. It's the Air. Oh. I have to find it now. Let's talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rick, talk. Well, news people. <laughs> no pressure. Huh? No pressure. Well, I, to, to my mind, one of the, I, I actually enjoyed reading the ebook. It was pretty easy to read, I found, and. The, the only problem with the ebooks is is the uh, inability right now to do yellow stickies. And yeah. when I read, especially for an interview or something, I like to have yellow stickies. And there's just that tactile feel that you just can't duplicate. And the smell. The smell is important. The smell of books is important. Very important part of the experience of reading. And that's what makes it... Uh, Possible for us. Scratch and sniff. <laughs> yeah, I, I just. I thought I thought of doing a scratch and sniff CV once. Uh. <laughs> Very great, wouldn't it? And this is when I used to work in the kitchens. And, and then I spent three years working for the for the sanitation department. <laughs> scratch box C. Very good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, I'm having trouble here now. I just uh, read a scratch and sniff book actually called uh, Pat the Zombie. It was uh, kind of like, <laughs> it was, it was uh, unlike, it was it Pat the Bunny, right. Pat the Bunny, but, uh, but with furry bunny. guts and yeah. you could peel yes. the bunny apart. And then there's some nice scratch and stuff. I, t t I'll be honest, there I did not go. scratch it. Oh, I found it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so do we want to just run through a few of them? Yeah. 
Okay, this is number one. This is, I, actually, this is a piece I wrote for a, a, a writing competition for kids, actually. Um, so, it, so it's quite simple, but actually it's also quite complex. Um, uh, and when I give, give talks to kids, I generally run through this, and then we talk about books and writing, and, and we throw an idea out, and they start throwing ideas back, and it's quite exciting. Um, so um, there is only one, read for, uh, one real rule for writing, make it readable. Uh, but a response to this might be, how do I make it readable? So here are 10 random hints and tips in no particular order that might help. Um, uh, one is rewrite. Okay. Uh, writing is a creative endeavor that requires practice to get right. Uh, luckily, it's very easy to change, delete, and rewrite, and writing always improves with editing. So, yeah, rewriting. Now, rewriting is, of course, you know, really the one thing that you learn have to do. Learn to have to do. No, you have to learn to do. Um, you have to be your best own best critic or own worst critic, whatever the way uh, you look at it. You have to be able to look at your own writing and say, this doesn't work. Now, I've got to make it work. Now, will this work? No, how about this? What this? Oh, hang on, we're getting better. Now, if you can't do that, you may never be able to be a writer. But if you can look at your own prose and say, this stinks and I can improve it, then you've clearly got what it takes. And most people can do that. But um, I often get... Um, uh, I, went into my, I went into my agent's uh, offices, offices the other day and we were chatting away as we do and I was saying, well, you know, who's the next big writer that's coming up? And they say, oh, well, we don't know. We haven't seen anything for ages. And I said, but you get stuff sent to you on a daily basis. And they went, oh, yeah, yeah, slush pal, this high. <laughs> I said, what, and there's nothing in it? And they said, no, not really. And I said, well, there must be something, surely. No, well, I mean, have a look. Do you want to have a look? And I went, no, okay. And I said, well, you haven't read it all. And they went, no, 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 just read the first line, you know. And I said, well, that seems fairly dismissive. And I go, okay, have a look, right? So, so they hand me the first manuscript. I read the first line. Oh, it's a stinker. <laughs> Absolute stinker. It, it, the sort of thing is um, he, he stood on the street corner, the rain running down his hat, and he remembered the time when he left his wife two months before. <laughs> Seriously, I kid you not. Now, if you can send that kind of first line, right, to an agent, then clearly you do not understand that you're not writing very well. Um, and, and that is unbelievably important. And that's when I say rewrite, and that is the basic functional tool of a rewrite. You have to know when it's not working, right? So when you read this stuff and, and it's, it's a stinker, you have to know it's a stinker. Um, and I was, whenever I read my stuff back and I just think it's awful, then that, what that shows to me is that I've actually learned something in the intervening years since I wrote it. Um, when I, as I, I wrote, the first book I wrote, as I was saying earlier, was The Big Over Easy. Um, but I didn't manage to get that published until 2005. Uh, and I wrote it in about 94, so it's 11 years previously. Um, and I thought, well, I'll just dust it off, you know, do, run a spell check over it, you know, no, no problem at all. And I started reading it and I went, oh my God, this really is bad, you know, um, there's just a one trick pony, you know, the, the themes are pretty much the same. But all the stuff that you read about in The Big Over Easy, which really essentially just uh, takes the piss out of the tired crime genre, which is essentially what that book does more than anything else, it just take, completely takes the crap out of the, the, the genre. Um, all that was added later because there wasn't enough in the book. And I knew that as soon as I read it. As soon as I started reading it, I just went, oh, no, 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 no. But what, what that meant to me, of course, which is good, is that in that 11 years, I'd learned to rewrite, and I'd learned a lot more. So, so rewriting, is, is uh, that was number one on, on top of this. Uh, number two is don't rush it. Um, it's more for children, really, but um, you know, we're all children, essentially. Um, you know, take your time to get it right. Again, you know, I, I, I've 
been sent stuff and I've read stuff because like they're a friend or a friend of a friend because I don't generally read stuff and, and give opinions on it because it opens a huge can of worms. Um, well, no, it does actually because if I say things then I often get you know, either an argument back you know, oh, no, 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 the, the reason I wrote that was because blah, 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 and people get very defensive. So it's actually easier to, to, to say, I don't read anything, I'm sorry. Um, but, um, but I get stuff that I do read, you know, for his friends of friends, and they want, they want an honest appraisal, and I always do give them an honest appraisal, and, and that generally means, you know, sometimes they don't talk to me ever again, because <laughs> um, they don't want to hear that. They want to hear what they actually want, what they're really asking for, and you instantly know is, who is, the net, who is your agent, and will you send it to them? Um, and I read this stuff and I go, this has just been written in a hurry. And you, you can tell, you know, you can tell it's been written in a hurry. You know, just don't rush it. Go away and rewrite it. Um, read it aloud. There's another one, very obvious. If you read uh, your books aloud, you'll know if they, uh, you know, if they dance or not. Um, some books are really easy to read aloud. Um, anything by Roald Dahl, very easy to re read to your children. I mean, dead easy. Really good stuff. A. Mill, fantastic to read aloud. Try and read Lemony Snicket aloud. <laughs> hard, really very hard to read aloud. And I, I actually found myself editing it on the fly <laughs> when, when I was reading it. I mean, for God's sake, don't tell him, you know. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I did find myself edit, editing it on the fly to, just to make it, you know, read, read slightly smoother. Um, you know, uh, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that about other authors. I, I, I apologise, um, you know, if it gets back to him. But um, I'm sure he hates me. I don't hate him. Um, tie myself in knots. Um, but read it aloud. Very important, I think, to, to, to read it aloud. Um, uh, have, we, have, we, have we got enough? We're only on number four now. What happens next? Yeah, that's what you want to know. What happens next? Whenever you're, whenever you're writing, uh, uh, whenever you're reading a really good uh, book, what happens next? Do they die? Do they live? Do they fall in love? Does he get the girl? Does he get the boy? You know, uh, does the bomb go off? You know, all that sort of stuff. You know, who gets the spoon? You know, I don't know. You know, did he see the rabbit, didn't he? Um, you know, um, show don't tell. That's a very obvious one. That that comes around a lot. Um, don't explain. I mean, I, I think I did actually an example here. Um, yeah, this is um, a very obvious example. Uh, instead of saying it was night and it had been raining hard, a man opened the front door and stepped into the room. He stopped and looked around. Okay, that's real sort of you know boring writing. Uh, but then I just said, well, why not, why not try this? Which is uh, the door swung open to reveal a man silhouetted in the streetlights. He shook the rain from his coat as his eyes scanned the room. Okay, so instantly it actually uh, it scans better as a sentence. But essentially, instead of saying that it's raining, um, you say that he shook the rain from his coat. So you're demonstrating what is happening rather than saying what is happening. If somebody loves someone in a book, they don't tell them, although they might. Mm. It's far better to demonstrate it, you know. You know, you need a kidney, have mine. <laughs> Simple, isn't it? How many people would you give a kidney to? It's a good question to ask yourself, you know. Um, uh, it is a good question, isn't it? Uh, less is often more. Um, yeah, drama does not have to involve murder and mayhem. Um, again, um, the obvious example of this is, um, I mean, on one side of the, 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 the scale you have sort of Tarantino where everybody, everybody in the room has a gun, you know, and that's the drama. Um, but on the other side of the scale, perhaps you have something like Strictly Ballroom, mm. um, where, whereby the drama is, you know, dancing your own steps of the Pan Pacific. And the drama, I think, in, in Strictly Ballroom is better than the drama in Reservoir Dogs, personally speaking. Um, I think it's more exciting. And it's, I think it's more skilled as well. Because if you can create a drama out of someone who wants to dance their own steps at a ballroom, a very small regional uh, ballroom uh, competition, that's good drama, and it's skillfully constructed. 
So, so less, uh, less is often more. Um, be bold. There you go. Is this getting boring? Are you right? No. Okay, um, be bold. Uh, don't be worried about taking risks with your writing. Uh, listen to your inner voice. Very important. Um, when, you're, when you're writing, just listen to that little voice that says, uh, mm, this is dull, or I think that would be quite good, really. Even if some, you come across a really weird idea and you think, um, yeah, that, that, that strikes me as a good idea, but it just doesn't sound very conventional. Listen to the voice uh, and be bold with writing. Um, write with risk. If you're not writing with a bit of risk, you're not really writing at all. Um, if you don't write with any risk, you're just writing a sort of Me Too book, really. Um, and even if it's not published, it's still yours, mm -hmm. which is really important because you're writing essentially for yourself. Every, all authors essentially write for themselves, um, you know, whether they're published or not. If I hadn't been published in 2001, I'd probably still be writing. You know, and I'd have very different books, actually. It's quite interesting to think what I would have written had I not been published. Um, probably more standalone books, and there would still only be one Thursday. Um, but um, I would have gone in some other direction. Um, um, don't waste words. That's another obvious one. Um, this is another example. Um, there were three cars driving along the road, and we were in the one in the middle. <laughs> okay, you want to describe where you are, okay? Three, three cars. It's a good exercise, and I often do this. I, I say... Right, describe this in the, in the, in the smallest way possible. Um, that's 18 words. I can get it down to 10, which is, we were in the middle of a three-car motorcade. Much easier. And it just, the uptake is so much quicker and easier. So if you've got a long-winded um, sentence that doesn't really make, it explains what's going on. Just look at the sentence and think, it's getting a bit draggy on the ice. How can I shorten it? Because you don't need all those words. And I think many books are too wordy, really. Um, they should be much, much, much shorter. If you can say, any, any book that you can say in 100,000 words, you should be able to say in 60,000. And I'm sure if I sat down, I could shorten one of our Thursdays. I could take out 10,000 words, and you'd never know they were gone, just by better, tighter writing. You know? But um, I, don't, I don't have the time, sadly. <laughs> um, uh, re uh, rewrite, I'm putting that in again because it's so important. Um, and number 10 was, if it works, it works. Um, I put this at the very bottom because all these rules and many others can be safely ignored so long as your piece works and is engaging. And the most original works are ones that circumvent the rules in new and inventive ways, um, which I think is true. If it does work, it works. Uh, and there's no real hard and fast rule about telling stories at all other than to be engaging and readable. And those, essentially, is the bottom line. You know. Yeah? Make a bit of sense, but anyway. Mm -hmm. Have another question. Oh. Step up to the microphone, please. Um, have you ever been tempted? I mean, you have the idea of Cardenio and the, the hilarious Thomas Hardy. Have you ever been mm. tempted to write, return the humor to Thomas Hardy? Because I'd pay a lot of money to read Funny Hardy. Yeah, it would be good, <laughs> wouldn't it? Um, funny Hardy, yeah. Now, I always, it all started with a joke, actually, um, which was that I read Thomas Hardy backwards so it has a happy ending. <laughs> Which is, which I, I think is a great as a gag, isn't it? That, that's the ultimate literary gag, really. Um, you know, I, and if someone says, you know, I hate Thomas Hardy, you know, it's just so miserable. You know, read it backwards. <laughs> much, much better. Um, and that, that led on to this, this idea, I think it was in uh, First Among Sequels, is that Thomas Hardy used to write the funniest books in the English language. They were hysterical. Uh, and they've just had so much comedy taken out of them over the years. But comedy, the comedy genre has been stealing all the one-liners and the whimsical asides. And before you know it, they've actually gone into a sort of negative, inverse, sort of negative comedy. Miserable, in fact. And some of them are so miserable. I mean, God's sakes. Uh, but some of them are works of genius, and he was very good with words. We have to admit that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it'd be quite a, fun, what, a funny version of Jude the Obscure. <laughs> 
I don't know how to quite how you'd funny up those some of those. Selling, selling a wife and child. Yeah, it's a bit tricky, isn't it? Bit. Yeah, to make it into a comedy, but it would be a good um, a good challenge, and I like a challenge. Yeah, to make it do the obscure into a comedy. Yeah, no, that would be quite good, wouldn't it? And I, we have another question. We do. Step up to the podium, please. Hi. Right, so um, my daughter introduced me to the Thursday Next series. And I'm mm. glad she did. Um, <laughs> um, so as I started reading the Air Affair, I found myself coming back to the cover. Saying, Who? Who's the author? Who's the author? It's like, you know, I was reading Thursday's words. Mm. How do you do that? Are you Thursday? <laughs> oh. Um, well, no, obviously, um, is, the, is the easy answer. Um, I think um, you, you just, you j this, when, you, when you're writing, you're, uh, it's, it's observation, certainly, um, and that you, when you're writing in the first person, you, you're obviously putting yourself, you're trying to be an actor, I suppose, and trying to put yourself in, in, in someone else's shoes and, and how they would react. Um, now, w you, well, we all know people, and we know what would happen if, they, if you did or said something. Don't you? So, which ta takes away the sort of notion of free will a bit. If, if you, you could be predicted by your daughter to do something, if she said something to you, she could predict how you would react, couldn't you? If you said something or whatever, you'd know, you know, oh, he'd go ballistic or he'd laugh or you'd know, exactly, because we do know people. So, it's the same when, when you're writing. You, you put yourself into the, the shoes of these characters and you kind of know their parameters and how they work. Uh, and then you can actually figure out what they'd say. Well, you've done an amazing bit of work. Oh, uh, good. Uh, well, thank uh, you. One more question quickly. Yeah. Um, will we uh, see any of your works in film? Oh, in film. Um, it's, it's not terribly likely, I have to say. Um, the, the Thursday series, uh, even more unlikely. We, we might get nursery crime. You could possibly make those into films without, without ruining it. Um, but the, the, the Thursday series, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, the way because I used to work in the film industry, and I do know, um, and I do know how the film industry works um, quite well, it is that uh, producers or directors rather make not don't make the films they can make, but the, the films they, they they don't make the films they want to make. They make the film they can make, because there's you know there's all lots of sorts of problems. You know, typhoons wipe out sets, and you know actors won't get, come out of their Winnebago's, and, and all the, <laughs> you know all the hundred and one problems that you have, or the generator breaks down, or something like that. Um, uh, and I think um, what we generally do is that um, we say uh, to my agent, okay, you've got to weed out, obviously, I'm only going to speak to someone who's a player, right? Because I could, I could have, you know, meetings every single day of the week with people pretending to be producers, mm. right? So I say, right, they have to be a player, which means they have to have done something, a, a film that I have heard of. Right. Not, not, not something that I haven't heard of, you know. Uh, and one of the things that happens to me when I go to uh, L.A., is that I get doorstepped by producers, and I mean producers with you know quotes <laughs> next to them, uh, and and literally uh, you know at a talk here, and you can see them pacing around waiting for me to finish so they can pounce um, to give me a card and they and say I want to do a meeting, you know, can you do breakfast and all this stuff, and I go no, well no, um, you know why, you know like this, well I you know look on my FAQ section of my website, you know, and there's a bit there that explains exactly why I won't. Um, but um, no, and I said, well, okay, I'll talk to players and we'll have a meeting. And in 10 years, we've had two meetings and nothing has come of it. But um, who knows? I mean, one, one day. But a part of me thinks that the Thursday series is actually about storytelling and writing. 
uh, and that's our little secret. And, and people in the movies, you know, you know who, who reads books anymore, you know, what, and all that kind of stuff. And, and also the, the kind of assumption that, um, that a film is somehow a progression from a book is, I think, fallacious at the very um, best. So it, it, I, I don't really see it, to be honest. So um, I, I'm not really thinking of it, and I don't need to, and I don't really see it as important to the series. But, um, you know, possibly Shades of Grey, Nursery Crime. I don't know if the right person came along and they were going to do a good job and I felt that they might, might do a good job, I trusted them, then possibly. But we've got nothing optioned at the moment. It's all, I still own it all. Yeah. Yeah. Any further questions? Yes. The daughter now. Yes. The daughter. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the Thursday series, you use a lot of characters from other authors' works, mm. and I was wondering if, um, one, if you're bombarded with people telling you that so-and-so should be a Juris Fiction agent, yeah. or um, if there were ever characters that you wanted to use that didn't make it into the books. Yeah, um, characters like, I, I generally, obviously it's nothing that, can, that is still in copyright. That's a big problem. Um, oh. Because uh, I can't really do that, because of, for obvious reasons. Um, so that leaves the that leaves the the people I can use quite narrow, because it has to be a, a character that is in the public domain, and that is famous enough for people to know about it. So the ones that I generally use are the one, the ones that people know of, like you know the um, Miss Havisham, the Cheshire Cat, you know, uh, and characters like that. Ones which really, if you haven't even read. Um, great expectations generally if you read books and I write for people who read books um, you know that Miss Havisham, the character of Miss Havisham with the rotting you know wedding bell and all that you've got a pretty good idea um, so that's kind of why I do it um, but um, there are books that I've sort of decided I didn't want to use or touch you know the obvious ones like I don't know To Kill a Mockingbird you know because they're so brilliant and perfect mm. um, I had a reread of it actually the other day and it's such a it's still a brilliant book and it's not a long book as well it's a, we're talking about you know less is more um, it's quite short, um, and it's uh, the, the, all the writing is very tight. There's hardly a wasted word in it. But um, but I, when I read it again, and I hadn't realised this, um, it, it's actually Scout telling the story of how Jem broke his broke his arm, because that's how it begins, that's how it ends. Uh, and and I just thought this was so brilliantly uh, a fantastic sort of um, sort of familiarly mundane story, how my brother broke his arm, you know. You could have called it, I suppose, How My Brother Broke His Arm. <laughs> um, but it, it's just uh, such a brilliant book that I didn't feel I could you know, really sully it in any way. Although I think I do mention Boo, Ra Boo Radley um, maybe once or twice in my book. So, because um, he's a great character, Boo Radley. Yeah. I was actually surprised, uh, mm. I think in First Among Sequels, you, you used the name Harry Potter, and I was yeah. wondering if they started, if they were going to come after you with their cadres of uh, lawyers, because they're pretty they can. avaricious. Don't think they can, actually. Oh. No, because it's fair use. Oh, okay. I, say, I mean, the, the thing about copyright is that you don't know, um, you don't really know you've actually um, infringed it until the judge says you have, <laughs> uh, first and foremost. Um, I, I can mention Harry Potter. You're allowed to mention Harry Potter. If Harry Potter were to come into the room and would do something, then you're on slightly shaky ground, right? If he said something, you're definitely on shaky ground. But if you mention, you know, uh, Harry Potter will be coming in in 20 minutes, he doesn't appear. Right? <laughs> so that's okay. And you are allowed to use the word Harry Potter as long as you're not using it to sell something else, like, you know, a, name, a title of a book or something like Harry Potter 
and the something something. That's when it becomes a trademark. But if it's within a book like I use it, um, and I'm very obviously using it as a joke, um, you know, um, about the whole copyright issue, um, then that's sort of absolutely fine. The interesting one for the lawyers at Penguin um, was um, uh, Godot, using Godot as a head in the bag. You remember plot device in, I think it was TN3. Now, Godot, of course, does not appear in Waiting for Godot, so he can't be copyrighted. But can he? <laughs> Could you use the character of Godot? I, it's an interesting one. I don't know quite how you'd, you'd, you'd do that. Um, but, um, but because he's only a head in the bag and doesn't say anything, and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's very obviously a sort of literary in-joke, then, then clearly, you know, um, Beckett, oh, he's dead now. But um, uh, it's very much still in copyright, but um, his, his family haven't sort of tried to sue me or anything. But, um, you know, if I were to become a billionaire, then perhaps they would, but, you know. Not at the moment. But it'd be a good one for the lawyers, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 Copywriting a character that doesn't appear in the play. Yeah. yeah. Any further questions? Um, do I have to go? Yeah. No, well, you can just say it. I'll repi just we'll repeat it back. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, because all the rest of your books are so ingrained in literature and you come across all the characters that you've already read about, and I'm reading Shades of Grey and mm. I'm getting out Wikipedia to mm. figure out what. Munson? Munsell. Munsell. Munsell scale is oh, yeah. and how it's very, and I, I understand it once I see it, so I'm wondering what the inspiration was for Shades of Grey, because mm. it's, as a literature person, it seemed, you know, I had to learn a lot more about art and, and color, color and Munsell yeah. and perception. Yes, and Pers hue and value. And yeah, color. yeah, it's kind of complex. Um, this, yeah, the question, repeat that, it's been the question. What's the inspiration? What's the inspiration behind Shades of Grey? Interesting um, art, or...? No, um, uh, it's slightly complex, I suppose, or maybe not. Um, the, the way I tend to write books is, is through a, a series of narrative dares. I, I just give myself a dare and then try and sort of, you know, dig my way out of this sort of narrative hole that I've, I've thrown myself into. Um, and I think the, the fun in that and why it's exciting and interesting and can throw up all kinds of um, interesting new ways of looking at things mm -hmm. is because you have to use your ingenuity to be able to you know, escape from this narrative hole. Um, so, uh, in very much like um, the, the notion of Jane Eyre being kidnapped out of Jane Eyre in, in the air affair. Now, that is the dare. Okay, now how can I make that um, believable uh, and almost inevitable and create a framework around that central idea? Uh, it has to be a crime thriller, obviously, because there's been a crime here, and creating a world in which this sort of thing could happen and it could be important. And then playing with all the characters to make it happen. So, so you kind of have, have a I have a dare, and then I have to kind of write my way out of it. Now, with um, Shades of Grey, I, it was, it's very much a sort of, I want to do post-apocalyptic novel. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was the, the basic sort of framework. I wanted to do that. Um, but I wanted to do it not the obvious way, which is, you know, two weeks after the apocalypse, where everyone's sort of shooting one another, usually with shotguns. Um, and driving around in cars w with petrol that you don't know where they got. Um, so, so I wanted to get away from that. So I thought, well, we'll, we'll say 1,500 years into the future. And then it was a case of saying, right, I want to create a world in which, in which the social rules have been changed. Because when you're writing fantasy, it's actually <coughs> quite fun to change the social rules of engagement and create new different types of drama. So you have drama about, you know, uh, sort of dynastic spoon um, um, bequeathment uh, becomes a major deal. Where's the spoon? Where's the spoon? You know, there shall be spoons. Yeah, you know, and postcodes and all that kind of stuff. Because you're creating a new way, a, a new method of drama. 
right? And that's, that's new and quite exciting. I mean, it goes back a bit to what I was saying about Strictly Ballroom. It's a different type of exciting bit of drama. No guns, nothing like that. Two people in a room, one has a gun, cheap drama. You know, very easy to do, right? But no, get, get away from... If I was writing the Thursday series again, no guns. See, I put guns in it, but that's, that's me being lazy. You know, in many ways, the Goliath Corporation is a bit lazy because everyone hates big corporations. I should have done something else. And in the fact, Samuel Peppers fiasco. Oh, oh, absolutely. But, <laughs> but in, 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 the, um, in the Shades of Grey, in fact, I was going the opposite to Goliath. So instead of having the terrors of a centralised government, I was having the terror terrors of a localised government. So all these sort of different ideas I was putting together. But originally, um, in the first Shades of Grey, the first sort of draft I was writing, it was just the economy was based. It was a colour-based economy where people were mining the scrap colour to be sent away and made into synthetic colour. And that's essentially how the economy drove itself, which is still how it works in the book. But then I thought, actually, we can, we can extend this notion of visual colour to actually um, encompass all parts of um, human sort of endeavour. Uh, not just the economy, so it was the, the hierarchy was based on the colours that you can see. So that was essentially the, the idea behind it, was to take this one notion of, of uh, visual colour and then, and then make it the dominating factor in a society in, in all manner. And then see, and then you put that onto humans, and humans have mischief and error and they want to do this and do that and they want to marry up and all that kind of stuff. So you can create all kinds of different um, ideas about the marriage market. There's a bit of Jane Austen in there, really. It's a bit of a mix. There's a mixture of sort of Fahrenheit 451 in there. There's, um, there's Brave New World, there's 1984, there's Flatland, and there's Sense and Sensibility. Um, and, and they're all squunged in there in a, in a, in a funny kind of way. Um, but also a bit, a bit of Mad Max as well. well I just wondered, because this is my sister and this is my best friend, and they're both artists, and I'm thinking, is he living with an art director or yeah. a painter? Well, colour's a lot more complex than I make it. I, could, I couldn't write how complex colour is. Yeah. Because complex, colour is incredibly complex. And to the lay person, it can get very dull very quickly. Uh, because you start talking about all kinds of things that, that is very difficult to understand. I mean, even the difference between colour on a screen and colour on a print, totally different. And, and then you can talk about a peacock's tail, which is another kind of colour factory. You cannot photograph a peacock's tail because it, it makes colour in a different way. Same with like, like um, uh, butterflies' wings. You know, the really bright, beautiful electric colours that you get. That, and also in a kingfisher, well maybe you don't have, we have bright blue, electric blue kingfishers. Impossible to photograph, because it's a different form of colour factory that's, that is actually making the colour. So it's all very, very complex, and I couldn't actually, um, a lot of it, stuff I had to take out again, because it was too techy, too wordy, too, you know. So it's really like colour light, almost. <laughs> Um, but, um, but there's enough, enough of colour in there and discussions of colour. And, and it's really more about colour perception. Did you know? that come from your work in film? Um, not really. Well, some of it, really. But yeah, in photography, perhaps, yeah. Okay. Yeah, subtractive colour systems, additive. You see, you start talking about subtractive colour systems and additive colour systems. Uh, and people who know them go, yeah, yeah, that's totally interesting. But people who don't know about that, those sort of systems, you start talking about those kind of colour systems and they go, yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and they go back to school and when they mixed poster paints and that was more what I was working towards because that's, that's a colour language that most people understand don't want to make it's it really too interesting. Mm. yeah it is quite interesting yeah, yeah I liked it also. Yeah. you call it your most serious novel yeah it's Why? a science fiction novel it's a straightforward it? anyways, straightforward science fiction novel serious? Uh, well I mean when you compare them to the others I think it's the most serious isn't it? Why, what would you say was more serious? No, I, I was wondering what you 
Oh yeah, no, I do. I think it's probably my most serious novel, but it's still pretty silly. Yeah. Uh, in places, but it you know touches touches you know I think things about all kinds of stuff about marriage markets which no one talks about. A very complex uh, you know thing. Um, all kinds of stuff, um, you know, reproductive politics almost. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of very interesting stuff that you can bung in there uh, and, uh, and put a few jokes in and pepper it with a bit of fun and laughter. Um, but for the most part, you know, human beings, there is a lot of very serious undertones that we seem to gloss over a lot and don't talk about. Yes. Um, and I was just trying to sort of put it out there and see, see what I could, how, how I could play with it and uh, make it funny, make it amusing, but also make it serious. Again, I was talking about, you know, just putting a strange mix together. So, it takes you a hundred days. That to took work. me a bit longer. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, one, yeah that one so took me a lot longer. No, this, well, now the world's made. Yes. It it's going to be a lot easier. Ha, huh, I say. <laughs> <laughs> I say. But, um, but, uh, well, you know the rules. I know the rules. I think once you know the rules of the world, that you can at least yeah, it, it will be obey easy. them or. Break them down, which well, you no, did with I, Thursday next. Well, the thing about the, the Shades of Grey rules is that they're completely immovable. So, yes. so I, I'll just carry on um, again with, the, with those rules and, and see what happens. But I was kind of thinking, I was trying to do a little sort of you know byline for the next book, and it was really you know will will um, Eddie sort of dismantle the mechanism of the state, or will he get involved in the bureaucracy surrounding um, uh, uh, rhododendron? problems because there's big problems with rhododendrons uh, and that could in fact stop him from you know doing what he's meant to do totally sidetracked into dealing with the rhododendrons which are very invasive in the book so um, and that's true in Wales actually because they um, you, you can date rhododendrons almost to the day when they arrived in the UK because it's a Tibetan um, yes. Tibetan tree uh, and and up north in Wales they're now covering the sides of the hills and if you gave it another 1500 years and the, perhaps it got a little bit warmer, um, there'd be like rhododendrons everywhere, very invasive, take over cropland, everything. And, the, the, and there are bits in the book where they, you know, whenever you find a rhododendron, you have to pick it out, you know, because it's very, very invasive. But, um, you know, all sorts of interesting things we can play with. But I don't know yet. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, any more questions? We have oh, one, yeah. on one more. Yeah. I think we have time for one more. Go over, uh, come. Just, just push your way past everybody. N knock a few people over. It's always amusing. When I read your books, I simultaneously feel, simultaneously feel clever, but mm. not quite clever enough. Mm. <laughs> oh. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Well, no, I mean, everyone's laughing because I'm, I'm sure it's like we get some jokes, but we know there's ones we missed. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to talk to that? Oh, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there, there's all sorts of little allusions peppered in the books. Um, I think wh when you... I, I remember when I was very, very small and I understood a grown-up joke. And I remember that being very, very exciting. And I'm talking to sometimes to children now who read my... I, I don't like calling children young adults. They're, they're children or kids or something. Um, and I, I speak to like 11 and 12-year-olds who are reading my books. And they are so chuffed when they get one of the references. You know, they are so chuffed about it. You know, they just saw something. Um, and they're like Easter eggs. You know, it's finding Easter eggs. I don't know whether you had, you had Easter egg hunts when you were in your family, uh, when you were growing up. We did, and it's great fun. You just go around the garden looking for little Easter eggs. Um, 
So I, I, I put an, an, it is yeah. absolutely, um, and I, so I put enough in there, and because I, I want them, some of them to be very obscure, because if you find a really obscure one, then it's just for you, because you think no one else could have got this. <laughs> um, and this is this is between me and Jasper, and he's talking to me directly, <laughs> you know. Uh, and sometimes I do do that, and I put them in the ones that are so incredibly obscure, like they're just lines from a film or a book or something. Uh, and, and they are, and I, only a handful of people can get them. And I think that's important, because not everyone gets the same, obviously the, the very obvious ones, and everyone perhaps will get them, or most people will get them. But there are, there are a handful that, you know, only you'll get the very specific ones. You well, know. I have to ask then, mm. in First Among Sequels, there's a line where somebody uh, says, tells, it's talking to somebody about time, one of the chrono guys, and he said, uh, where, uh, her son, Friday, says, mm. get stuffed. Mm. And uh, I'm wondering if that's uh, from the uh, Harlan Ellicon, Ellison story. Repent Harlequin said, <laughs> Repent. there's a great Harlan Ellison story called Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man. Yeah. And the, the, uh, the Harlequin tells the TikTok man, get stuffed. Yes, that's exactly where it was from. <laughs> All right, that's very nice to know. <laughs> See, you've got me, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that, that's interesting as well because because I, I, I get I get this quite a lot too. Is uh -huh. that, that people say to me? As people say to me, ah, I love the reference you did to so and so and so and so. Um, and I I think I had a, a character called uh, Anna Bannon, who you know who invented the banana essentially, and that's why I called her Anna Bannon. But Anna Bannon is very like a very early gay writer. Right, and, and someone had picked up on that and said, for gay female writer, and had picked up on that and said, oh, I like the reference to that. That was very interesting. And I'm going, oh, right, no, it wasn't actually. <laughs> it, was, it was just a silly joke about designing the banana. So they, they, they clearly, and the joke is, they clearly named it after her. You know, we've invented this thing, and you know, who invented it? Oh, Anna Bannon. Well, you'll think of a name somewhere. You know? um, and that was the joke. But people read all kinds of stuff into my, my work, you know. I would so, imagine, yeah. Um, there we uh, are. I'm uh, a poster child. But people, people, people want to see patterns, you know, that everyone likes to see patterns. There is actually a word for it, but I, I, for my life of me, I can't remember what it is. The, the, the being able to see patterns in stuff, mm -hmm. and humans can see that, and you'll often look at stuff and go, yes, there's a pattern there, or there's something I recognize, but yeah, there are a few, but not all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess Harlan, yeah. well, with Ellison, you'd have to worry, he, he might come after you. Really? Uh, he's a bit dangerous. No, noted, noted, <laughs> noted litigious guy. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, he's, well, on, he got on money. The word get stuffed. Well, no, he got. He, here's a man who's, who managed to sue James Cameron for Terminator, based on which was had some vague similarities to a Outer Limits story that Harlan Nelson had written 30 years before. Really? And yeah, and he got. If you watch the videos of Terminator now, it'll say thanks to Harlan Nelson. Really? Because Harlan Nelson said this, that's my story. Really? Yeah. Okay. No, I, well, I, I, I promise not to tell him that, that uh, you were well, riffing said, on stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. You said, get yeah. stuff. I'm sure it's not the first time it's been used. <laughs> yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you have no more questions, I think we have quite a few people here who want their books signed. Yeah. And I yeah. think uh, yeah. Mr. Jasper Ford is ready to go. <laughs> Thank you, Jasper. Thank you. Thank you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.